When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World, by Jules Verne, Chapter 8, At Any Cost. The suggestion of the star came like a revelation. It was accepted everywhere. Not only were these three vehicles the work of the same inventor, they were the same machine. It was not easy to see how the remarkable transformation could be practically accomplished from one means of locomotion to the other. How could an automobile become a boat, and yet more, a submarine? All the machine seemed to lack was the power of flying through the air. Nevertheless, everything that was known of the three different machines, as to their size, their shape, their lack of odor or of steam, and above all their remarkable speed, seemed to imply their identity. The public, grown blasé with so many excitements, found in this new marvel a stimulus to reawaken their curiosity. The newspapers dwelt now chiefly on the importance of the invention. This new engine, whether in one vehicle or three, had given proofs of its power. What amazing proofs! The invention must be bought at any price. The United States government must purchase it at once for the use of the nation. Assuredly the great European powers would stop at nothing to be beforehand with America, and gain possession of an engine so invaluable for military and naval use. What incalculable advantages would it give to any nation, both on land and sea! Its destructive powers could not even be estimated until its qualities and limitations were better known. No amount of money would be too great to pay for the secret. America could not put her millions to better use. But to buy the machine it was necessary to find the inventor, and there seemed the chief difficulty. In vain was Lake Kurdal's search from end to end. Even its depths were explored with a sounding line without result. Must it be concluded that the submarine no longer lurked beneath its waters? But in that case how had the boat gotten away? For that matter, how had it come? An insoluble problem! The submarine was heard from no more, neither in Lake Kurdal nor elsewhere. It had disappeared, like the automobile from the roads, and like the boat from the shores of America. Several times in my interviews with Mr. Ward we discussed this matter, which still filled his mind. Our men continued everywhere on the lookout, but as unsuccessfully as other agents. On the morning of the 27th of June I was summoned into the presence of Mr. Ward. "'Well, Strock,' said he, "'here is a splendid chance for you to get your revenge.' revenge for the great eerie disappointment of course what chance 
asked I, not knowing if he spoke seriously or in jest. "'Why, here,' he answered, "'would you not like to discover the inventor of this threefold machine?' "'I certainly should, Mr. Ward. Give me the order to take charge of the matter, and I will accomplish the impossible, in order to succeed. It is true, I believe it will be difficult.' undoubtedly struck, perhaps even more difficult than to penetrate into the Great Eyrie. It was evident that Mr. Ward was intent on rallying me about my unsuccess. He would not do that, I felt assured, out of mere unkindness. Perhaps then he meant to rouse my resolution. He knew me well, and realized that I would have given anything in the world to recoup my defeat. I waited quietly for new instructions. Mr. Ward dropped his jesting, and said to me very generously, "'I know, Struck, that you accomplished everything that depended on human powers, and that no blame attaches to you. But we face now a matter very different from that of the Great Erie. The day the government decides to force that secret, everything is ready. We have only to spend some thousands of dollars, and the road will be open.' "'That is what I would urge.' "'But at present,' said Mr. Ward, shaking his head, "'it is much more important to place our hands on this fantastic inventor, who so constantly escapes us. That is work for a detective indeed, a master detective.' "'He has not been heard from again?' "'No, and though there is every reason to believe that he has been, and still continues, beneath the waters of Lake Kirdall, it has been impossible to find any trace of him anywhere around there. One would almost fancy he had the power of making himself invisible, this Proteus of a mechanic. It seems likely, said I, that he will never be seen until he wishes to be. True, Strock, and to my mind there is only one way of dealing with him, and that is to offer him such an enormous price that he cannot refuse to sell his invention. Mr. Ward was right. Indeed, the government had already made the effort to secure speech with this hero of the day, than whom surely no human being has ever better merited the title. The press had widely spread the news, and this extraordinary individual must assuredly know what the government desired of him, and how completely he could name the terms he wished. "'Surely,' added Mr. Ward, this invention can be of no personal use to the man, that he should hide it from the rest of us. There is every reason why he should sell it. Can this unknown be already some dangerous criminal who, thanks to his machine, hopes to defy all pursuit? My chief then went on to explain that it had been decided to employ other means in search of the inventor. It was possible, after all, that he had perished with his machine in some dangerous manoeuvre. If so, the ruined vehicle might prove itself almost as valuable and instructive to the mechanical world as the man himself. But since the accident to the schooner Markle on Lake Kirdall, no news of him whatever had reached the police. On this point Mr. Ward did not attempt to hide his disappointment and his anxiety. Anxiety, yes, for it was manifestly becoming more and more difficult for him to fulfil his duty of protecting the public. 
how could we arrest criminals if they could flee from justice at such speed over both land and sea how could we pursue them under the oceans and when dirigible balloons should also have reached their full perfection we would even have to chase men through the air i asked myself if my colleagues and i would not find ourselves some day reduced to utter helplessness if police officials become a useless encumbrance would they be definitely discarded by society here there recurred to me the jesting letter i had received a fortnight before the letter which threatened my liberty and even my life i recalled also the singular espionage of which i had been the subject i asked myself if i had better mention these things to mr ward but they seemed to have absolutely no relation to the matter now in hand the great eerie affair had been definitely put aside by the government since an eruption was no longer threatening and they now wished to employ me upon this newer matter i waited then to mention this letter to my chief at some future time when it would not be so sore a joke to me mr ward again took up our conversation we are resolved by some means to establish communication with this inventor he has disappeared it is true but he may reappear at any moment and in any part of the country i have chosen you struck to follow him the instant he appears you must hold yourself ready to leave washington on the moment do not quit your house except to come here to headquarters each day notify me each time by telephone when you start from home and report to me personally the moment you arrive here i will follow orders exactly mr ward i answered but permit me one question ought i to act alone or will it not be better to join with me that is what i intend said the chief interrupting me you are to choose two of our men whom you think the best fitted i will do so mr ward and now if some day or other i stand in the presence of our man what am i to do with him above all things do not lose sight of him if there is no other way arrest him you shall have a warrant a useful precaution mr ward if he started to jump into his automobile and to speed away at the rate we know of i must stop him at any cost one cannot argue long with a man making two hundred miles an hour you must prevent that struck and the arrest made telegraph me after that the matter will be in my hands count on me mr ward at any hour day or night i shall be ready to start with my men i thank you for having entrusted this mission to me if it succeeds it will be a great honor and of great profit added my chief dismissing me returning home i made all preparations for a trip of indefinite duration perhaps my good housekeeper imagined that i planned a return to the great eyrie which she regarded as an antechamber of hell itself she said nothing but went about her work with a most despairing face nevertheless sure as i was of her discretion i told her nothing in this great mission i would confide in no one my choice of the two men to accompany me was easily made they both belonged to my own department and had many times under my direct command given proofs of their vigor courage and intelligence one john hart of illinois 
was a man of thirty years. The other, aged thirty-two, was Nab Walker, of Massachusetts. I could not have had better assistance. Several days passed, without news, either of the automobile, the boat, or the submarine. There were rumors in plenty, but the police knew them to be false. As to the reckless stories that appeared in the newspapers, they had most of them no foundation whatever. Even the best journals cannot be trusted to refuse an exciting bit of news on the mere ground of its unreliability. Then, twice in quick succession, there came what seemed trustworthy reports of the man of the hour. The first asserted that he had been seen on the roads of Arkansas, near Little Rock. The second, that he was in the very middle of Lake Superior. Unfortunately, these two notices were absolutely unreconcilable, for while the first gave the afternoon of June twenty-sixth as the time of appearance, the second set it for the evening of the same day. Now, these two points of the United States territory are not less than eight hundred miles apart. Even granting the automobile this unthinkable speed, greater than any it had yet shown, how could it have crossed all the intervening country unseen? How could it traverse the states of Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, and Wisconsin, from end to end without any one of our agents giving us warning, without any interested person rushing to a telephone? After these two momentary appearances, if appearances they were, the machine again dropped out of knowledge. Mr. Ward did not think it worth while to dispatch me and my men to either point whence it had been reported. Yet since this marvellous machine seemed still in existence, something must be done. The following official notice was published in every newspaper of the United States under July 3rd. It was couched in the most formal terms. During the month of April of the present year, an automobile traversed the roads of Pennsylvania, of Kentucky, of Ohio, of Tennessee, of Missouri, of Illinois, and on the 27th of May, during the race held by the American Automobile Club, it covered the course in Wisconsin. Then it disappeared. During the first week of June, a boat maneuvering at great speed appeared off the coast of New England, between Cape Cod and Cape Sable, and more particularly around Boston then it disappeared. In the second fortnight of the same month a submarine boat was run beneath the waters of Lake Kurdal in Kansas, then it disappeared. Everything points to the belief that the same inventor must have built these three machines, or perhaps that they are the same machine, constructed so as to travel both on land and water. A proposition is therefore addressed to the said inventor, whoever he be, with the aim of acquiring the said machine. He is requested to make himself known and to name the terms upon which he will treat with the United States Government. He is also requested to answer as promptly as possible to the Department of Federal Police, Washington, D.C., United States of America. Such was the notice printed in large type on the front page of every newspaper. Surely it could not fail to reach the eye of him for whom it was intended wherever he might be. He would read it. He could scarce fail to answer it in some manner. And why should he refuse such an unlimited offer? We had only to await his reply. One can easily imagine how high the public curiosity rose. 
from morning till night an eager and noisy crowd pressed about the bureau of police awaiting the arrival of a letter or a telegram the best reporters were on the spot what honour what profit would come to the paper which was first to publish the famous news to know at last the name and place of the undiscoverable unknown and to know if he would agree to some bargain with the government it goes without saying that america does things on a magnificent scale millions would not be lacking for the inventor if necessary all the millionaires in the country would open their inexhaustible purses the day passed to how many excited and impatient people it seemed to contain more than twenty-four hours and each hour held far more than sixty minutes there came no answer no letter no telegram the night following there was still no news and it was the same the next day and the next there came however another result which had been fully foreseen the cables informed europe of what the united states government had done the different powers of the old world hoped also to obtain possession of the wonderful invention why should they not struggle for an advantage so tremendous why should they not enter the contest with their millions in brief every great power took part in the affair france england russia italy austria germany only the states of the second order refrained from entering with their smaller resources upon a useless effort the european press published notices identical with that of the united states the extraordinary chauffeur had only to speak to become a rival to the vanderbilts the astors the goulds the morgans and the rothschilds of every country of europe and when the mysterious inventor made no sign what attractive offers were held forth to tempt him to discard the secrecy in which he was enwrapped the whole world became a public market an auction-house whence arose the most amazing bids twice a day the newspapers would add up the amounts and these kept rising from millions to millions the end came when the united states congress after a memorable session voted to offer the sum of twenty million dollars and there was not a citizen of the estates of whatever rank who objected to the amount so much importance was attached to the possession of this prodigious engine of locomotion as for me i said emphatically to my old housekeeper the machine is worth even more than that evidently the other nations of the world did not think so for their bids remained below the final sum but how useless was this mighty struggle of the great rivals the inventor did not appear he did not exist he had never existed it was all a monstrous pretense of the american newspapers that at least became the announced view of the old world and so the time passed there was no further news of our man there was no response from him he appeared no more for my part not knowing what to think i commenced to lose all hope of reaching any solution to the strange affair then on the morning of the fifteenth of july a letter without postmark was found in the mailbox of the police bureau after the authorities had studied it it was given out to the washington journals which published it in facsimile in special numbers it was couched as follows End of chapter.
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 9 The Second Letter. On Board the Terror, July 15, to the Old and New World. The propositions emanating from the different governments of Europe, as also that which has finally been made by the United States of America, need expect no other answer than this. I refuse absolutely and definitely the sums offered for my invention. My machine will be neither French nor German, nor Austrian nor Russian, nor English nor American. The invention will remain my own, and I shall use it as pleases me. With it I hold control of the entire world, and there lies no force within the reach of humanity which is able to resist me under any circumstances whatsoever. Let no one attempt to seize or stop me. It is, and will be, utterly impossible. Whatever injury any one attempts against me, I will return a hundredfold. As to the money which is offered me, I despise it. I have no need of it. Moreover, on the day when it pleases me to have millions, or billions, I have but to reach out my hand and take them. Let both the old and the new world realize this. They can accomplish nothing against me. I can accomplish anything against them. I sign this letter the master of the world. End of chapter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MASTER OF THE WORLD By Jules Verne Chapter 10 Outside the Law Such was the letter addressed to the Government of the United States. As to the person who had placed it in the mailbox of the police, no one had seen him. The sidewalk in front of our offices had probably not been once vacant during the entire night. From sunset to sunrise there had always been people, busy, anxious, or curious, passing before our door. It is true, however, that even then the bearer of the letter might easily have slipped by unseen and dropped the letter in the box. The night had been so dark you could scarcely see from one side of the street to the other. I have said that this letter appeared in facsimile in all the newspapers to which the government communicated it. Perhaps one would naturally imagine that the first comment of the public would be, This is the work of some practical joker. It was in that way that I had accepted my letter from the Great Erie five weeks before. But this was not the general attitude toward the present letter, neither in Washington nor in the rest of America. 
to the few who would have maintained that the document should not be taken seriously, an immense majority would have responded, This letter has not the style nor the spirit of a jester. Only one man could have written it, and that is the inventor of this unapproachable machine. To most people this conclusion seemed indisputable owing to a curious state of mind easily explainable. For all the strange facts of which the key had hitherto been lacking, this letter furnished an explanation. The theory now almost universally accepted was as follows. The inventor had hidden himself for a time, only in order to reappear more startlingly in some new light. Instead of having perished in an accident, he had concealed himself in some retreat where the police were unable to discover him. Then to assert positively his attitude toward all governments he had written this letter. But instead of dropping it in the post in any one locality, which might have resulted in its being traced to him, he had come to Washington and deposited it himself in the very spot suggested by the government's official notice, the Bureau of Police. Well, if this remarkable personage had reckoned that this new proof of his existence would make some noise in two worlds, he certainly figured rightly. That day the millions of good folk who read and re-read their daily paper could, to employ a well-known phrase, scarcely believe their eyes. As for myself, I studied carefully every phrase of the defiant document. The handwriting was black and heavy. An expert at chirography would doubtless have distinguished in the lines traces of a violent temperament, of a character stern and unsocial. Suddenly a cry escaped me, a cry that fortunately my housekeeper did not hear. Why had I not noticed sooner the resemblance of the handwriting to that of the letter I had received from Morganton? Moreover, a yet more significant coincidence, the initials with which my letter had been signed, did they not stand for the words, Master of the World? And whence came the second letter, on board the Terror? Doubtless this name was that of the triple machine commanded by the mysterious captain. The initials in my letter were his own signature, and it was he who had threatened me, if I dared to renew my attempt on the Great Erie. I rose and took from my desk the letter of June 13th. I compared it with the facsimile in the newspapers. There was no doubt about it. They were both in the same peculiar handwriting. My mind worked eagerly. I sought to trace the probable deductions from this striking fact, known only to myself. The man who had threatened me was the commander of this terror, and the Great Erie. What connection was there between the phenomena of the Blue Ridge Mountains, amid the no less phenomenal performances of the fantastic machine? I knew what my first step should be, and with the letter in my pocket I hastened to police headquarters. Inquiring if Mr. Ward was within, and receiving an affirmative reply, I hastened toward his door, and rapped upon it with unusual and perhaps unnecessary vigor. Upon his call to enter I stepped eagerly into the room. The chief had spread before him the letter published in the papers, not a facsimile, but the original itself which had been deposited in the letter-box of the department. "'You come as if you had important news, Struck?' 
Judge for yourself, Mr. Ward. And I drew from my pocket the letter with the initials. Mr. Ward took it, glanced at his face, and asked, What is this? A letter signed only with initials, as you can see. And where was it posted? In Morganton, in North Carolina. When did you receive it? A month ago, the 13th of June. What did you think of it then? That it had been written as a joke. And now struck? I think what you will think, Mr. Ward, after you have studied it. My chief turned to the letter again and read it carefully. It is signed with three initials, said he. Yes, Mr. Ward, and those initials belong to the words Master of the World in this facsimile. Of which this is the original, responded Mr. Ward, taking it up. It is quite evident, I urged, that the two letters are by the same hand. It seems so. You see what threats are made against me to protect the Great Erie? Yes, the threat of death. But struck, you have had this letter for a month. Why have you not shown it to me before? Because I attach no importance to it. Today, after the letter from the Terror, it must be taken seriously. I agree with you. It appears to be most important. I even hope it may prove the means of tracking this strange personage. That is what I also hope, Mr. Ward. Only what connection can possibly exist between the Terror and the Great Erie? That I do not know. I cannot even imagine. There can be but one explanation, continued Mr. Ward, though it is almost inadmissible, even impossible. And that is? That the Great Erie was the spot selected by the inventor, where he gathered his material. That is impossible, cried I. In what way would he get his material in there? And how get his machine out? After what I have seen, Mr. Ward, your suggestion is impossible. Unless struck? Unless what? I demanded. Unless the machine of this master of the world has also wings which permit it to take refuge in the Great Erie. At the suggestion that the terror, which had searched the deeps of the sea, might be capable also of rivaling the vultures and the eagles, I could not restrain an expressive shrug of incredulity. Neither did Mr. Ward himself dwell upon the extravagant hypothesis. He took the two letters and compared them afresh. He examined them under a microscope, especially the signatures, and established their perfect identity. Not only the same hand, but the same pen had written them. After some moments of further reflection, Mr. Ward said, I will keep your letter struck. Decidedly, I think, that you are fated to play an important part in this strange affair, or rather in these two affairs. What thread attaches them I cannot yet see, but I am sure the thread exists. You have been connected with the first, and it will not be surprising if you have a large part in the second. I hope so, Mr. Ward. You know how inquisitive I am. I do, Struck. That is understood. Now, I can only repeat my former order. Hold yourself in readiness to leave Washington at a moment's warning. All that day, 
the public excitement caused by the defiant letter mounted steadily higher. It was felt both at the White House and at the Capitol that public opinion absolutely demanded some action. Of course, it was difficult to do anything. Where could one find this master of the world? And even if he were discovered, how could he be captured? He had at his disposal not only the powers he had displayed, but apparently still greater resources, as yet unknown. How had he been able to reach Lake Kurdal over the rocks, and how had he escaped from it? Then, if he had indeed appeared on Lake Superior, how had he covered all the intervening territory, unseen? What a bewildering affair it was altogether! This, of course, made it all the more important to get to the bottom of it. Since the millions of dollars had been refused, force must be employed. The inventor and his invention were not to be bought. And in what haughty and menacing terms he had couched his refusal! So be it. He must be treated as an enemy of society, against whom all means became justified, that he might be deprived of his power to injure others. The idea that he had perished was now entirely discarded. He was alive very much alive, and his existence constituted a perpetual public danger. Influenced by these ideas, the government issued the following proclamation. Since the commander of the terror has refused to make public his invention at any price whatever, since the use which he makes of his machine constitutes a public menace, against which it is impossible to guard, the said commander of the terror is hereby placed beyond the protection of the law. Any measures taken in the effort to capture or destroy either him or his machine will be approved and rewarded. It was a declaration of war, war to the death against this master of the world who thought to threaten and defy an entire nation, the American nation. Before the day was over, various rewards of large amounts were promised to anyone who revealed the hiding-place of this dangerous inventor, to anyone who could identify him, and to anyone who could rid the country of him. Such was the situation during the last fortnight of July. All was left to the hazard of fortune. The moment the outlaw reappeared he would be seen and signalled, and when the chance came he would be arrested. This could not be accomplished when he was in his automobile on land or in his boat on the water. No, he must be seized suddenly before he had any opportunity to escape by means of that speed which no other machine could equal. I was therefore all alert, awaiting an order from Mr. Ward to start out with my men. But the order did not arrive for the very good reason that the man whom it concerned remained undiscovered. The end of July approached. The newspapers continued the excitement. They published repeated rumors. New clues were constantly being announced. But all this was mere idle talk. Telegrams reached the police bureau from every part of America, each contradicting and nullifying the others. The enormous rewards offered could not help but lead to accusations, errors, and blunders, made, many of them, in good faith. One time it would be a cloud of dust which must have contained the automobile. At another time, almost any wave on any of America's thousand lakes represented the submarine. In truth, in the excited state of the public imagination, 
apparitions assailed us from every side. At last, on the twenty-ninth of July, I received a telephone message to come to Mr. Ward on the instant. Twenty minutes later I was in his cabinet. "'You leave in an hour, Struck,' said he. "'Wherefore?' "'For Toledo.' "'It has been seen?' "'Yes. At Toledo you will get your final orders.' In an hour my men and I will be on the way. Good. And struck, I now give you a formal order. What is it, Mr. Ward? To succeed. This time to succeed. End of chapter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 11 The Campaign. So the undiscoverable commander had reappeared upon the territory of the United States. He had never shown himself in Europe, either on the roads or in the seas. He had not crossed the Atlantic, which apparently he could have traversed in three days. Did he then intend to make only America the scene of his exploits? Ought we to conclude from this that he was an American? Let me insist upon this point. It seemed clear that the submarine might easily have crossed the vast sea which separates the new and the old world. Not only would its amazing speed have made its voyage short, in comparison to that of the swiftest steamship, but also it would have escaped all the storms that make the voyage dangerous. Tempest did not exist for it. It had but to abandon the surface of the waves, and it could find absolute calm a few score feet beneath. But the inventor had not crossed the Atlantic, and if he were to be captured now, it would probably be in Ohio, since Toledo is a city of that state. This time the fact of the machine's appearance had been kept secret, between the police and the agent who had warned them, and whom I was hurrying to meet. No journal, and many would have paid high for the chance, was printing this news. We had decided that nothing should be revealed until our effort was at an end. No indiscretion would be committed by either my comrades or myself. The man to whom I was sent with an order from Mr. Ward was named Arthur Wells. He awaited us at Toledo. The city of Toledo stands at the western end of Lake Erie. Our train sped during the night across West Virginia and Ohio. There was no delay, and before noon the next day, the locomotive stopped in the Toledo depot. John Hart, Nab Walker, and I stepped out with traveling bags in our hands and revolvers in our pockets. Perhaps we should need weapons for an attack, or even to defend ourselves. Scarcely had I stepped from the train when I picked out the man who awaited us. He was scanning the arriving passengers impatiently, evidently as eager and full of haste as I. I approached him. "'Mr. Wells,' said I. "'Mr. Strock?' asked he. "'Yes. I am at your command,' said Mr. Wells. "'Are we to stop any time in Toledo?' I asked. 
No, with your permission, Mr. Strock. A carriage with two good horses is waiting outside the station, and we must leave at once to reach our destination as soon as possible. We will go at once, I answered, signing to my two men to follow us. Is it far? Twenty miles. And the place is called Black Rock Creek. Having left our bags at a hotel, we started on our drive. Much to my surprise I found there were provisions sufficient for several days packed beneath the seat of the carriage. Mr. Wells told me that the region around Black Rock Creek was among the wildest in the state. There was nothing there to attract either farmers or fishermen. We would not find an inn for our meals, nor a room in which to sleep. Fortunately, during the July heat there would be no hardship, even if we had to lie one or two nights under the stars. More probably, however, if we were successful, the matter would not occupy us many hours. Either the commander of the terror would be surprised before he had a chance to escape, or he would take to flight and we must give up all hope of arresting him. I found Arthur Wells to be a man of about forty, large and powerful. I knew him by reputation to be one of the best of our local police agents. Cool in danger and enterprising always, he had proven his daring on more than one occasion at the peril of his life. He had been in Toledo on a wholly different mission, when chance had thrown him on the track of the terror. We drove rapidly along the shore of Lake Erie, toward the southwest. This inland sea of water is on the northern boundary of the United States, lying between Canada on one side and the states of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York on the other. If I stop to mention the geographical position of this lake, its depth, its extent, and the waters nearest around, it is because the knowledge is necessary for the understanding of the events which were about to happen. The surface of Lake Erie covers about ten thousand square miles. It is nearly six hundred feet above sea level. It is joined on the northwest, by means of the Detroit River, with the still greater lakes to the westward, and receives their waters. It has also rivers of its own, though of less importance, such as the Rocky, the Cuyahoga, and the Black. The lake empties at its northeastern end into Lake Ontario by means of Niagara River and its celebrated falls. The greatest known depth of Lake Erie is over 130 feet. Hence it will be seen that the mass of its waters is considerable. In short, this is a region of most magnificent lakes. The land, though not situated far northward, is exposed to the full sweep of the Arctic cold. The region to the northward is low, and the winds of winter rush down with extreme violence. Hence Lake Erie is sometimes frozen over from shore to shore. The principal cities on the borders of this great lake are Buffalo at the east, which belongs to New York State, and Toledo in Ohio at the west, with Cleveland and Sandusky, both Ohio cities, at the south. Smaller towns and villages are numerous along the shore. The traffic is naturally large, its annual value being estimated at considerably over two million dollars. Our carriage followed a rough and little-used road along the borders of the lake, and as we toiled along Arthur Wells told me what he had learned. Less than two days before, 
On the afternoon of July 27th, Wells had been riding on horseback toward the town of Hurley. Five miles outside the town, he was riding through a little wood, when he saw, far up across the lake, a submarine which rose suddenly above the waves. He stopped, tied his horse, and stole on foot to the edge of the lake. There from behind a tree he had seen with his own eyes, seen this submarine, advance toward him, and stop at the mouth of Black Rock Creek. Was it the famous machine for which the whole world was seeking, which thus came directly to his feet? When the submarine was close to the rocks, two men climbed out upon its deck and stepped ashore. Was one of them this master of the world, who had not been seen since he was reported from Lake Superior? Was this the mysterious terror which had thus risen from the depths of Lake Erie? "'I was alone,' said Wells, "'alone on the edge of the creek. If you and your assistants, Mr. Strock, had been there, we four against two, we would have been able to reach these men and seize them before they could have regained their boat and fled.' Probably, I answered. But were there no others on the boat with them? Still, if we had seized the two, we could have at least have learned who they were. And above all, added Wells, if one of them turned out to be the captain of the terror. I have only one fear, Wells. This submarine, whether it is the one we seek, or another, may have left the creek since your departure. We shall know that in a few hours now. Pray heaven they are still there. Then, when night comes? But, I asked, did you remain watching in the wood until night? No. I left after an hour's watching, and rode straight for the telegraph station at Toledo. I reached there late at night, and sent immediate word to Washington. That was night before last. Did you return yesterday to Black Rock Creek? Yes. The submarine was still there? In the same spot. And the two men? The same two men. I judged that some accident had happened, and they came to this lonely spot to repair it. Probably so, said I, some damage which made it impossible for them to regain their usual hiding-place, if only they are still here. I have reason to believe they will be for quite a lot of stuff was taken out of the boat and laid about upon the shore, and as well as I could discern from a distance they seemed to be working on board. Only the two men? Only the two. But, protested I, can two be sufficient to handle an apparatus of such speed, and of such intricacy, as to be at once automobile, boat, and submarine? I think not, Mr. Strzok but I only saw the same two. Several times they came to the edge of the little wood where I was hidden, and gathered sticks for a fire which they made upon the beach. The region is so uninhabited, and the creek so hidden from the lake that they ran little danger of discovery. They seemed to know this. You would recognize them both again? Perfectly. One was of middle size, vigorous, and quick of movement, heavily bearded. The other was smaller but stocky and strong. Yesterday, as before, I left the wood about five o'clock and hurried back to Toledo. There I found a telegram from Mr. Ward, notifying me of your coming, and I awaited you at the station. 
Summed up, then, the news amounted to this. For forty hours past a submarine, presumably the one we sought, had been hidden in Black Rock Creek, engaged in repairs. Probably these were absolutely necessary, and we should find the boat still there. As to how the terror came to be in Lake Erie, Arthur Wells and I discussed that, and agreed that it was a very probable place for her. The last time she had been seen was on Lake Superior. From there to Lake Erie the machine could have come by the roads of Michigan, but since no one had remarked its passage, and as both the police and the people were specially aroused and active in that portion of the country, it seemed more probable that the terror had come by water. There was a clear route through the chain of the Great Lakes and their rivers, by which in her character of a submarine she could easily proceed undiscovered. And now, if the terror had already left the creek, or if she escaped when we attempted to seize her, in what direction would she turn? In any case there was little chance of following her. There were two torpedo-destroyers at the port of Buffalo, at the other extremity of Lake Erie. By treaty between the United States and Canada there are no vessels of war whatever on the Great Lakes. These might, however, have been little launches belonging to the Customs Service. Before I left Washington Mr. Ward had informed me of their presence, and a telegram to their commanders would, if there were need, start them in pursuit of the terror. But despite their splendid speed, how could they vie with her? And if she plunged beneath the waters, they would be helpless. Moreover, Arthur Wells averred that in case of a battle, the advantage would not be with the destroyers, despite their large crews and many guns. Hence, if we did not succeed this night, the campaign would end in failure. Arthur Wells knew Black Rock Creek thoroughly, having hunted there more than once. It was bordered in most places with sharp rocks, against which the waters of the lake beat heavily. Its channel was some thirty feet deep, so that the terror could take shelter either upon the surface or under water. In two or three places the steep banks gave way to sand beaches, which led to little gorges reaching up toward the woods, two or three hundred feet. It was seven in the evening when our carriage reached these woods. There was still daylight enough for us to see easily, even in the shade of the trees. To have crossed openly to the edge of the creek would have exposed us to the view of the men of the terror, if she were still there, and thus giving her warning to escape. "'Had we better stop here?' I asked Wells, as our rig drew up to the edge of the woods. "'No, Mr. Strock,' said he. "'We had better leave the carriage deeper in the woods, where there will be no chance whatever of our being seen.' "'Can the carriage drive under these trees?' "'It can,' declared Wells. "'I have already explored these woods thoroughly. Five or six hundred feet from here there is a little clearing, where we will be completely hidden, and where our horses may find pasture.' Then, as soon as it is dark, we will go down to the beach, at the edge of the rocks which shut in the mouth of the creek. Thus, if the terror is still there, we shall stand between her and escape." Eager as we all were for action, it was evidently best to do as Wells suggested, and wait for night. The intervening time could well be occupied as he said. Leading the horses by the bridle, while they dragged the empty carriage, we proceeded through the heavy woods. 
the tall pines, the stalwart oaks, the cypress scattered here and there, made the evening darker overhead. Beneath our feet spread a carpet of scattered herbs, pine-needles, and dead leaves. Such was the thickness of the upper foliage that the last rays of the setting sun could no longer penetrate here. We had to feel our way, and it was not without some knocks that the carriage reached the clearing ten minutes later. This clearing, surrounded by great trees, formed a sort of oval, covered with rich grass. Here it was still daylight, and the darkness would scarcely deepen for over an hour. There was thus time to arrange an encampment and to rest a while after our hard trip over the rough and rocky roads. Of course we were intensely eager to approach the creek and see if the terror were still there. But prudence restrained us. A little patience, and the night would enable us to reach a commanding position unsuspected. Wells urged this strongly, and despite my eagerness I felt that he was right. The horses were unharnessed, and left to browse under the care of the coachman who had driven us. The provisions were unpacked, and John Hart and Nab Walker spread out a meal on the grass at the foot of a superb cypress, which recalled to me the forest odours of Morganton and Pleasant Garden. We were hungry and thirsty, and food and drink were not lacking. Then our pipes were lighted to calm the anxious moments of waiting that remained. Silence reigned within the wood. The last song of the birds had ceased. With the coming of night the breeze fell, little by little, and the leaves scarcely quivered even at the tops of the highest branches. The sky darkened rapidly after sundown, and twilight deepened into obscurity. I looked at my watch. It was half-past eight. It is time, Wells. When you will, Mr. Strock. Then let us start. We cautioned the coachman not to let the horses stray beyond the clearing. Then we started. Wells went in advance. I followed him, and John Hart and Nab Walker came behind. In the darkness we three would have been helpless without the guidance of Wells. Soon we reached the farther border of the woods, and before us stretched the banks of Black Rock Creek. All was silent. All seemed deserted. We could advance without risk. If the terror was there, she had cast anchor behind the rocks. But was she there? That was the momentous question. As we approached the denouement of this exciting affair, my heart was in my throat. Wells motioned to us to advance. The sand of the shore crunched beneath our steps. The two hundred feet between us and the mouth of the creek were crossed softly, and a few minutes sufficed to bring us to the rocks at the edge of the lake. There was nothing. Nothing. The spot where Wells had left the terror twenty-four hours before was empty. The master of the world was no longer at Black Rock Creek. End of chapter Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.